0: The Women Changing the World Podcast, a podcast on a mission to bring you, some of the most amazing women I know, who are doing incredible things to generally make the world a better place. From corporate sustainability to straight-up magic and everything in between, you'll meet the real-life humans who are birthing the new. I'm your host, Liz Best, and I'm here to amplify the stories and voices of women who are changing the world. Welcome to another new episode of the Women Changing the World podcast. Today, I am so thrilled to be sitting down with Tiffany Yu. She is the CEO and founder of DiverseAbility, which is an award-winning, entirely disabled run and led social enterprise to elevate disability pride. Tiffany is also a content creator with over 170,000 followers across platforms. She is a three-time TEDx speaker and has been named a TikTok API trailblazer and a LinkedIn top voice in disability advocacy. At the age of nine, Tiffany became disabled as a result of a car accident that also took the life of her father. Tiffany has helped to invest over $160,000 in disability initiatives through the Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter and the Disability Empowerment Endowed Fund at Georgetown University. She previously served on the San Francisco Mayor's Disability Council. She's been featured in Marie Claire, The Guardian, and Forbes. She started her career in investment banking at Goldman Sachs and has also worked at Bloomberg and Sean Diddy Combs Revolt Media and TV. She earned a bachelor's degree from Georgetown University and a master's degree from the London School of Economics. Today, we sat down and talked about everything from Tiffany's journey in building the diversity community to her experiences as a thought leader and content creator on platforms like TikTok and LinkedIn, and the many ways that being a community leader has informed Tiffany's own leadership. Tiffany is incredible. She blows me away, and I just know you're going to enjoy my conversation with her as much as I did. and welcome to another new episode of the Women Changing the World podcast. Today, I am so excited to be joined by Tiffany Yu, who is the CEO and founder of DiverseAbility. Tiffany, you're amazing. You are so amazing. I feel like I'm already choked up just reading your bio. I feel so honored to have you on the show. Um, Welcome to the podcast. Please say hello to our listeners.
1: Yeah. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Liz. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Oh, my goodness. The pleasure is all mine. Um, You know, one of the things I really love to offer space for on the Women Changing the World podcast is to let women who are doing incredible work – I mean, obviously, you are like so much more than your bio and also – The things that you've done to this date are incredible. Um, And I want to offer space for you to tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to be here. Um, And again, really, the invitation is don't feel the need to be brief. Like We would love to hear a little bit more about you, Tiffany, and how you came to be where we are today.
1: Sure. It's like, where do I even start? Um, But usually I start by sharing that I'm the youngest daughter of a Taiwanese immigrant, my dad, and a refugee from the Vietnam War, my mom. And being the daughter of Asian immigrants, I think has started to make a little bit more sense in my story and the decisions that my family made. Um, So I grew up in a suburb right outside of Washington DC and at the age of nine, and this is actually what inspires a lot of my work, over Thanksgiving weekend, the day after my dad's birthday, we were involved in a car accident where he ended up passing away and I ended up acquiring a slew of injuries including permanently paralyzing one of my arms, breaking some of the major bones in one of my legs that would leave me in a wheelchair for a couple months, and much later being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I wanted to share all of that because after my dad passed away, or one of the things that I'm learning about my Asian cultural background, or at least what was instilled in my family, was that we shouldn't really share anything that might make our family look shameful. And the car accident and the fact that my dad had passed away and now that I I had an apparent disability were all seen as potentially shameful things to the family. So I had internalized for about 12 years after the accident not to share the details with anyone, not to tell anyone about the car accident, not to tell anyone about my dad, and to essentially hide my arm by wearing long sleeves all the time. And I think there's one part of this whole story that is is a little ironic to me, which is the fact that my dad lived with epilepsy, but I didn't really know. And he would have seizures, but I didn't really know what those were either. And what actually caused the car accident was he had a seizure. So the fact that it was so hush-hush within his family and his generation around his disability ultimately led to, ultimately cost him his life and led to my disability. And, you know, I think about your podcast, Women Changing the World, I look at the experience that he had being, feeling so ashamed of this part of himself that he didn't get the support that he needed. And I think that what I learned from that was that I wanted to be vocal about this so that I could get the support that I needed. And oftentimes, you know, I've been having a lot of, or a lot of people have been reaching out to me asking, should I disclose my disability or not? How much should I share? And I said, ultimately, what I'm looking for is ensuring that everyone gets the support that they need for the things that they have. You know, that's a very broad way. I didn't mention disability or accessibility or accommodations in any of that phrasing. And, but yeah, I think that, that that's a little bit more of a a long winded way of, of explaining my work. So for about 12 years after the car accident, I didn't tell anyone about it. And I think that when this happened to me so young, because I didn't let myself process the trauma, I actually think that's what exacerbated what ultimately ended up becoming PTSD. So fast forward 12 years, fast forward 12 years from the car accident was 2009. The first iteration of DiverseAbility began, which was as, as a student club at Georgetown. And, and that's where kind of I became an advocate. I became a community builder. I would then become an entrepreneur. But it, it all started kind of having those 12 years of, I would call it suffering and silence to looking at my dad's experience while he was here and realizing that I didn't want that same fate for myself.
0: Oh my goodness. I mean, first of all, thank you so much for sharing your story so vulnerably. It's so powerful and I know for so many people, um so many women doing this work. I'm so inspired by this idea of like it stops with me. Like I'm going to do the healing and you know, use my voice in a way where I want to interrupt, like, the generational patterns. Um, And, yeah, again, I'm just, like, I can only imagine, like, what your journey to this point, like, has felt like. And and I think it's so inspiring the many ways in which you are taking your experience and using it to empower so many other people around the world um, to ask for what they need. Um, and to claim what they need. Um, I would love to hear, I mean, you mentioned that you started DiverseAbility as uh, as a student at Georgetown um, back in 2009 and that that was really version 1.0. And I know that it's evolved considerably over the past, wow, almost 14 years since 2009 that number seems insane <laughs> but um, I would love to hear a little bit about that journey for diversability um, and for you as the as the founder and CEO of the organization.
1: Yeah, so one of the questions so I've been reflecting on diversability's origins a lot these days because what really gave me the motivation and inspiration to start Diversibility was that from my freshman to junior year of college, or my, my years of college, I had co-founded a Taiwanese American club with a couple of my classmates. And so effectively, I had taken this experience from another part of my identity, which is being Taiwanese American. And I said, can we do the exact same thing, but for a disability identity? So what was interesting was, uh, in my mind, I was just starting another club. I didn't really think I didn't really think anything, anything like super meaningfully about disability, other than that it was an identity that I had, and there wasn't a disability club. So, and one of the things that I had found being in the Taiwanese American club was, up until I got to college, I didn't identify as AAPI or Taiwanese because I grew up being the only Asian family or one of a few Asian families in my neighborhood. And because there wasn't really other people to talk about being Asian American or Pacific Islander, I I didn't really have a self image or a self identity around that. So joining the Taiwanese American Club, not only rooted me in community, but I started to feel a sense of belonging and pride and culture around what it meant to be Taiwanese American. And I specify Taiwanese American because I think growing up in Taiwan and being Taiwanese American felt felt like different experiences to me. So senior year, here I am. I have my full-time offer in hand to go return to Goldman Sachs. And this is 2009, right? So we're one year after the start of the 2008 financial recession. And I'm just like, I just feel really lucky that I have a job. I don't know why I needed to mention that, but actually something very critical happened at Goldman, <laughs> which during my internship, I felt like I I actually had like a really tough internship and every single week you could go in and talk to a recruiter who would get feedback from your groups as to how you were doing. And so one of the weeks I went in and Jenny was my recruiter. She knew me through my time at Georgetown and she also was relaying feedback so she relayed some of the constructive feedback that I had gotten I, I again I wasn't having a great summer but as I was leaving she said Tiffany I want you to know that you deserved your place here you don't need to have a chip on your shoulder and what I appreciated about that or what that effectively did for me was it was like a call out in a way where she was like I see that some part of your identity is making is making you think that you don't fit here and I want you to know that you're here and you know, you're going to do great. So after leaving that conversation, I started to really reflect on if I was using my disability as a chip on my shoulder for why I didn't belong or why I didn't fit into certain spaces. And after Jenny gave me that feedback, it made me realize that I was potentially operating, that I was operating below my potential. So it was kind of the combination of starting the Taiwanese club. But then also this experience in the summer internship where I felt like I didn't belong that made me come back into my senior year and say I want to start this disability club so one of the things I'll share is that I reached out to I came up with this idea I'm like I'm going to start this disability club and I reached out to two other disabled students that I knew at Georgia and I just sent them an email I said hey I noticed that we don't really have a club on campus for disabled students and maybe our, our allies you know, to join us. And so I emailed them and I didn't hear back. And I don't know if they were overwhelmed by the number of emails that they received, but I am now learning that silence is also an answer. So I was like, okay, that's strike one. Strike number two, I I got introduced to someone on the Georgetown staff who was really passionate about disability studies. And I went to go meet with her and I said, Hey, I want to start this club. And she goes, I love what you're trying to do, but it's too radical. I don't think Georgetown is ready for this yet. So that was kind of like strike number two. Like, one hand, I can't get disabled students. Second hand, I can't get Georgetown staff. And then I was like, I probably just need a third sign. And then at least I tried. So I got invited in October of 2009 to speak on a panel. And on the, on the graduate side, they were looking at launching like a disability studies certificate. And so I got invited to speak on like a student panel there. And at the end of the panel, I said, you know, I had this idea to start this club at Georgetown, like a disability club, but I don't think it's going to happen because I asked a couple of people and I just haven't gotten the amount of buy-in that that I need to start a, to a club or a community. And this graduate certificate disability Graduate Disability Studies Certificate event brought together all the D.C. area schools. So like a professor from American was like, I'm going to be part of your club. Like Georgetown needs to have this. And then a student from Gallaudet handed me a sheet of paper where she actually wrote "diversibility" on the paper. So now I had this student from Gallaudet wanting to be in this club. And so effectively, so we originally called ourselves the Diversibility Working Group because I... I didn't have any of my peers in the club. It was like a professor here. It was like a student from this other university. And my fun story is that my little buddy in the Taiwanese club ended up creating the logo that DiversAbility used until 2021. So I was leaning into the other communities that I had to garner support. Um, and honestly, Diverse at Georgetown started as a community of one. I was hanging, I just remember hanging up these flyers around campus. I think it was October or November of 2009. And I remember two things kind of happened. One was we ended up applying for something called the Reimagine Georgetown Grant. And this, I think, actually inspires a lot of the philanthropic work that I do now. We ended up winning $500 to get our club started. Depending on who you are, $500 is a lot or a little. But at the time for me, that was game changing because not only was it the $500, but it was that someone other than me believed in this idea. Um, And I had all my Taiwanese friends like cheering me on too. So the second thing that happened was I would often get people coming to me asking, why do you think people are going to care about this? And in 2009, I, I don't know what my answer was. I probably said something along the lines of, you know, well, I care about this. And my hope is that other people will care too. And now as I look at our broader community, we have like over 80,000 in our ecosystem. I can point to that. And I can say, if you are wondering if people care, go look at the people who have chosen to opt into our community or chosen to follow us because they don't have to. And those people care and they're willing to be educated and they want to learn and they want to be a better ally. So, so that's the, that's the long story of Diversability's origins.
0: Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for telling us the long story. What a journey. And even just like, it's so visceral, the like description you gave us of like being like a, a community of one and hanging up posters. I think so often as, uh, community builders and community founders, there's this feeling of like, I'm starting a party. (laughs) Like, is anyone going to come to my party? And it's just overwhelming to see what you have built over the past, gosh, again, more than 10 years. Um, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit more about the work that you uh, and DiverseAbility are doing today to engage your community of over 80,000 people.
1: Yeah, so we I think we've divided divided it into like three pillars. Um, and so the first is our community. And depending on who you are, and I think many of your listeners might be executives or working at other companies. So we like to describe ourselves as like the disability employee resource group that exists outside of a company.
0: Mm, I love that.
1: <laughs> yeah, and 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 I think for like a more corporate audience, it helps them understand. Like, oh, I don't understand what a community is, but I know what role an employee resource group or an affinity group has. So if you think about, and interestingly enough, um, after Goldman, I worked at Bloomberg and I got to pitch the creation and co-found their disability employee resource group. And so I had the experiences not only being a part of these communities within these companies, but then saying, what about those of us who don't work at big companies who still need community as well? So the first pillar is kind of our community. And for many disabled people, this is the first place that they find community. And I kind of call it like a town square. So the town square you go to and maybe you have someone there like handing out flyers for an event that they're hosting. Or maybe you have, I don't know, <laughs> like uh, you go to the restaurant and or you meet up with your friends there. It's kind of like the place where everything is happening. And you can decide what you want to participate in. So I will share a personal story for me that as a function of creating diversity, I actually got introduced to the world of adaptive sports. And if you or your listeners have watched my first TED Talk, it was really about how excluded I felt during growing up with a with apparent disability, having to participate in this mandatory physical education class that no one adapted for me. So no matter when I showed up, no one wanted me to be there and I didn't want to be there. And I think thanks to DiverseAbility reintroducing me to the adaptive sport side of our town square, I got to go adaptive climbing, adaptive biking, like just fall fall back in love with being active again. Um so that's our community. And we have two communities. We have a free one that exists on Facebook. It's got about 57, 56, 5,700 members in it. And then we have a, a curated paid membership community called the Diversability Leadership Collective for members who are looking for curated, more curated support on accelerating their advocacy. And Liz, I know you and I are both part of Dreamers and Doers. To me, it's kind of like, this women's group that we're both part of that is trying to be our hype machine. And so for this paid community that we have, we're like, how can we be the hype machine for our, for our disabled members who want more visibility, who want to build their thought leadership. So that's pillar number one. Pillar number two is what I call content and events. And they kind of fit under like a visibility, uh, pillar. Um, but content and events, so content is really how can we amplify the voices of our community, but also share educational content and research that's out there? because there's ton and people are are just unaware. They're not they're not trying to be ill-intentioned. They just don't know what information is out there. And so because we've been able to build this platform, how can we use this as a way to amplify and be a microphone for some of this other information out there? So if you go to our social channels, Any guide that we've put together, you'll see all of our sources there as well. Um, We just wanna make sure there's research out there. So how can we share it and how can we enable other people uh, to share it and learn as well? And then on the event side, we kind of see ourselves as like the year round disability conference. It's all through the lens of disability, but totally different topics. So the one that's coming up later this month in February, 2023 is about disability and gender based violence. Last, uh, last month, it was disability and Gen Z advocacy. We've hosted events on disability and financial equity, disability and home ownership, disability and ableism in the workplace, careers in tech, like it totally ranges. But again, we use this as saying we value the disability lived experience. There's value there. And we want to center that experience and that expertise in the different types of events that we host. So that's kind of like pillar number two. Pillar number three, I'm trying to figure out how to describe it, but I call it our talent incubator, <laughs> but some people could call it our a workforce development program, but we've been able to grow our team. Now we're a team of eight, entirely disabled, led, and run.
0: Congratulations. That's amazing um, to have built your team to that level. That's incredible.
1: Yeah. I mean, I will say, I think that we grew, we grew a little too quickly and now I'm now I'm experiencing those growing pains, and I'm also experiencing the transition from being a leader on my own to now navigating being a manager, which is not, is, I call this a growth edge. It's a growth edge for me. But yeah, from our talent incubator and workforce development perspective, we really want to align by our values, which is we're, you know, we're on a mission to elevate disability pride. And what other way can we show that we're proud to be disabled by building a team that looks like the world we want to exist in? And, and so even for our team alum, you know, the people who have been with us for a short period of time or even a, a longer amount of time, we serve as their job reference or write them letters of recommendations whenever they're ready to go on to their next thing or if they want to pursue other opportunities. So so in my mind, my hope is that it's it's not ill you know, when people leave, like a win for them getting a job somewhere else is a win for me and a win for what we're trying to do.
0: Oh, I love that so much. Um, so cool. And there's so much within each of those pillars. I mean, I feel like we could have a whole podcast conversation about each of the three. Um, but the one I'd love to sort of dive a little bit deeper on is that middle pillar that you mentioned. Um, I am such a fan of your anti-ableism video series. I'm sure you have multiple answers to this question, but for the people who are listening who um, want to be better allies to disabled people and may not know how, I know you've created so much content on this topic. Um, what are some of the things that you wish more people knew about how to be better, more effective allies?
1: Yeah, so I think I'll I think I'll break this down. Or I don't know how to break it down. I mean, I get asked this question. I get asked this question a lot because I made a whole, a whole TikTok and, and, and Instagram and LinkedIn series on it. And I think that the context matters. So it really depends on who the audience is. So for example, if I'm talking to a corporate audience, you know, my call to action is really if you are a manager or play an influ- influential role, hire a disabled person. I started as an intern that you can do an apprenticeship program or an externship if you're not sure. I guess because I was an ambitious college student, I did so many internships. But I also want to share that the last job that I had before I moved into running Diversability full-time, I got fired from. So disabled people, we're not good at everything, but there are some things we are going to be good at. And I think part of the the work-related relationship is trying to figure out what those things are. So, what can I contribute to your company that's going to add value? And what am I going to? What am I? What am I good at that's going to contribute value to my economic engine? <laughs> I guess I'll call it that. Um, versus, if you are a content creator or run a podcast, you know, my ask for you would be to really reflect on the questions. If someone can't hear this conversation, is there another way that they can access it? Or if they can't see this conversation. Is there another way that they can access it? And I think I'd, I got those two questions from another disability advocate, Poppy Fields, to think about how we think about digital accessibility. But I think it comes down, I'll I'll share, I think it comes down to, at first I thought three things, then I wanted to add a fourth thing on. But I think I really want people to understand that learning should never be about shame, and I think I've tried to embed that within my series, but also how I go out and try to educate by saying, if you don't have this lived experience, how can I meet you where you are and at least move the conversation forward just a little bit? Because now you, you Liz, know me, which means you've met one disabled person and you understand how I move about the world. And hopefully you can Go and, you know, if you can meet other disabled people in person, great, but you can also follow them across social media so that you have diverse disability experiences on your feed as well. Um, but yeah, learning should never be about shame. And I think that whenever we get called out or called in by something that we have done, the natural inclination is to get defensive because we're human beings. And if something if someone gently lets us know that, hey, that language is outdated or hey, you know, when you said this or you did this, it made me feel this way. We feel like we're bad people when in reality, I think we're just people who are existing in an ableist society that has upheld, you know, and and now we're proactively trying to unlearn these things. So so yeah, the first is that learning should never be about shame. And then I kind of have like, a, a journey that I hope that people will go on in their own in their own disability allyship journey, which is the starting point for me is that I hope that people start to unlearn that disability is tragic. So part of I think how we got to where we are and if we think about what ableism means, ableism is when we think one person's body and or mind is better than another. And you could distill it down to, we think someone is better because they don't have a disability. Um, and and what that means for us disabled people is that people think that our lives are tragic. So the, the base level is, how can we do the work to unlearn that we think that a disabled person's life is tragic? And part of that is getting to know us, following us, seeing what disabled joy looks like. Some people call it crip joy. Then the second level is, how can we learn that disabled people are human beings. And I know this seems like a, like a simplified thing to say, but this goes a step above the disability is not tragedy. So disabled people are human beings. So what that means to me is that disabled people or some disabled people want to own homes. They want to get married. They want to have families. They want to build their career. They have dreams and aspirations. And I think that Oftentimes when we either meet a disability advocate or we see a disabled person, we get so fixated on their disability that we forget that they have other aspects to their lives as well. And and yeah, so my second level is seeing the humanity of the disabled person in the wholeness of their their experience, which is why it was so interesting to me to open my like, what am I about by saying I'm the daughter of Asian immigrants, because I do think that Being the Daughter of Asian Immigrants influenced like not only how I viewed disability within my family unit, but how I had to break that intergenerational pattern like you were talking about. And then the final thing, and I learned this from another disability advocate named Stephanie Thomas, is how can we view disability as aspirational? And the best way for me to think about this is when the Nike Fly E's shoes came out. So in my community, they were seen as like an adaptive shoe. They don't have laces, but everyone thought that the shoes looked cool. (laughs) So my hope is that, you know, and I think that there are a couple of these disability role models or disability possibility models, we can look at disabled people and, you know, my future kids or my nieces will look at their aunt and be like, that's my cool aunt. I want to be like her when I grow up right? In the wholeness of my identity. And I call that, um, and Stephanie, you know, brought that to me and she said, yeah, how do we get to a point where we view disability as an aspirational experience in the wholeness and in our full humanity? That was a lot, I know. So hopefully your listeners can pick and choose what resonated with them.
0: Oh my goodness! Well, thank you so much for so generously sharing all of it, and I have absolutely no doubt that you are uh, going to be like the cool aunt or cool mom to future generations in your orbit. Uh, yeah, I so appreciate you breaking that down, and in, in I feel like with one that like overarching piece, but then two that almost it feels like a journey, you know, for people to go on um, in terms of. How they can be more supportive and what and painting the vision of what we're working toward, um, and what the end state that we aspire to can be. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit more about your thought leadership and all the many incredible, amazing, inspiring ways that you've been showing. I mean, it's just amazing having been watching for, I guess, a couple years now. All the different ways you're showing up online. Again, I feel like from a thought leadership perspective, just some of the work that you've done is incredible. So I'm I'm curious, like what, what was sort of that initial spark that inspired you to really step more into content creation and thought leadership on platforms like TikTok and LinkedIn?
1: Yeah, such a good question. I call these my branches of advocacy. So I feel like I spend the most time on diversability, but we've got a couple of other branches and I guess the way I think about it. So as a, as a kid growing up now with a paralyzed arm, I had to learn how to life hack. I learned how to I don't know, let me think. I learned how to put a put a necklace on with one hand. I learned how to retie my shoelaces. And so I I bring that up because it's that level of creativity and I call it life hacking that translated into my advocacy world. So with in advocacy i guess the way i think about it is where where are my spheres of influence and where do i have an opportunity to make some additional impact so if we look back at diversability you know as this disability employee resource group for me that's really tackling the cycle of social isolation and social exclusion that many disabled people are subjected to so then i was like okay now i got my community then i said hey uh, you know, I started my career in financial services. I made a lot of money right out of college. And how can I reinvest some of that back into my community? And that's where the Awesome Foundation disability chapter started in 2017. Um, and we award $1,000 monthly micro grants to disability projects. So in 2020, as most of us were turning online, I said, well, if we're all going online, like I'm going to go online too. <laughs> And I think there's been a transition, but, but this is like, that's why I kind of wanted to share, like, I've had to learn how to be so adaptable and flexible because I'm in this disabled body. And as an advocate, I think I've also had to learn how to translate that into different mediums as well. Um, So I I did miss one. So sorry, in 2019, pre-pandemic, um, I started, or a couple years before that, I started showing up at meetings of the Mayor's Disability Council in San Francisco. And after a couple of meetings, they came to me and they said, hey, I really appreciate the comments that you're sharing. And I was just a member of the public, just sharing my opinion. They came and they said, do you want to join the council? And I had, I had actually envisioned that in 2024, like a five-year plan, maybe one day I would be lucky enough to be appointed by the mayor to join this disability council. So for me, that was kind of pivoting and saying, okay, here's an opportunity to get civically engaged in my local city, I was living in San Francisco at the time. And I got appointed by Mayor London Breed, who's the San Francisco mayor in 2019. And even while I was in there, I thought about what influence do I have being on this mayor's council? I can write letters to the mayor and, or we can write resolutions for the supervisors and they have to respond. You know, I'm not just a member of the public anymore. So really kind of leaning into that. So 2020, I turned online as many of us did. And I will say, um, or I guess what I'll share, I got invited to participate in a program called Learn on TikTok. And what they were trying to do, and this was July, 2020, what they were trying to do was they were trying to make TikTok a place where you could go and consume educational content while you were still at home. And Liz, I don't know if you know Ko Im, another dreamer and doer, but Ko and I did the program together, which was actually really fun. It helped solidify our friendship. Most of her content was mindfulness related because she's trained as a yoga instructor and she's really passionate about healing. And most of my content was disability related. But interestingly enough, my content actually all started as me showing how I navigated daily life, doing things with one hand. So here's how I open a package or, you know, here's how I crack a neck. And then in December of 2020, I transitioned into, you know, showing people how I do things with one hand is a different type of advocacy content. It's very specific. I'm grateful to meet the other people who have my injury and occupational therapists and stroke survivors who were learning from my content. But I also felt like that it was a different type of advocacy. Like I have no, um, and actually I might start resharing some of that on Instagram, but I thought about kind of what I had been doing at DiverseAbility since 2009. And then, you know, even with the Marriage Disability Council and Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter, and I said, how can I share like more of those allyship lessons or even like my own advocacy journey on, on camera, on TikTok? And, and that's where, that's where it began. I mean, it started, and even for me showing up on LinkedIn, I was lucky enough to be accepted to the LinkedIn creator accelerator program at the beginning of 2022. And so I think, I don't know, I don't know if this is the best advice, but it's like, there was a paid program and I got into it. And so that got me onto the platform, but I think what maybe the platforms are excited about is I ended up staying beyond the program and continuing to create content on there.
0: I mean, I think it's like you saw an opportunity to show up and to be a part of something and to be heard and to like learn how to like show up and you have like taken that information and just like moved with it in such a in such an inspiring way. Um, and I think it's like also a reminder, like when you see those opportunities that speak to you to like throw your name in the metaphorical hat because you don't know what could come from it.
1: Yeah, and I will share, actually, and I did share my video submission from the LinkedIn Creator Accelerator program. I filmed that at the airport, like it was the last day that you could submit. And maybe I did a couple takes, but I'm sitting on the floor in the airport, like in a little corner, I got my tripod, I'm filming on my phone. I think this is where the life hacking comes in too, is like, you know, you and I have a podcast. If we weren't recording it here, we would record it on Zoom. Like, I just think about the things that we have access to. Like, our phone is a video camera, effectively. But I will also share, there have been a couple of opportunities where I've applied past the deadline. And I either end up being a finalist or I end up winning the thing, even though I think that it was past the deadline, right? And so they could have they could have, of course, just cut my application by saying, hey, it was past the time. But I was like, hey, the form is still open. So let me at least submit. So I guess the the hope is, you know, if the form is still open and you have the time, might as well apply anyway. You never know what ends up happening. Um, there was a trend that was popular at the end of last year called the anti-highlight reel. And so I would also be remiss that you know, what Liz and I are talking about are the things I have gotten into. And there are so many, you know, I think there's even podcasts dedicated to failures. There are so many things that I haven't gotten and so many moments where I have doubted myself. And I think I just remind myself of like, what's the broader mission here? And the anti-ableism series, um, it's an outdated number in my bio. Now it's at over 5 million views, you know? And so I think about the original decision to want to show up on TikTok. And at the time it was very much a Gen Z platform and I'm millennial. Um, and so, and I was like, hashtag over 30. But I think that I my goal for showing up on TikTok originally was I would like other people to learn about my work because we had been doing what we were doing at Diversibility for a pretty long time, right? And 5 million. 5 million views and counting that's a lot of people you know and so if you want to have the ability to reach millions of people you want to lead an impactful or soul driven life i think showing up is is a part of that you pick your platform though so if you don't feel comfortable you know there are there are many other platforms depending on your preferred method of communication
0: Totally. Oh, I so love that. And I love what you said too about just like also honoring like all the times that like maybe you submitted an application and didn't get picked. Like I was listening to Glennon Doyle's um, We Can Do Hard Things podcast the other day and something that really resonated with me is this idea of sharing like the work in progress moments and not just the ta at the end. Because so often I think it's like we do focus on the ta-da at the end. Um, and it can be scary to show up, especially showing up publicly in the messy middle of, you know, being in progress on on something. And I guess I'm curious, um, you know, as as you think about kind of like early 2023 where you're at, if you feel comfortable sharing like, what is currently like in progress in your world um, that you're excited about that's ahead, but that's maybe not quite at like to da level doneness <laughs> at this point in time?
1: Yeah. Um, two things come to mind. So I just, posted, I just posted an Instagram post and I said, I'm experiencing burnout. And I thought that my entrance into January 2023 was going to be a fresh start. My word for this year is bloom. I see all the flowers behind you and to me, I'm taking that as a sign. (laughs) Um, But at the end of my post, I wrote, part of why I chose bloom for this year is because I know that we can bloom slower. We can bloom at our own pace. We bloom in our own way. And we're not blooming all year round. And so right now, as we record this conversation, you know, you use the words, what are you excited about? And I did, I did so much Googling. Actually, a friend named the burnout because I thought I was just depressed and maybe a seasonal related thing. And I said, I'm not really that excited about anything, even though there are so many incredible things happening. I'm getting the chat with you. You know, I got amazing headshots from the same person who, and I still use them. I use them all the time. Um, but I'm also not, I'm not having very low lows. And then she actually said to me, she said, Oh, I think that might sound like burnout. So this past weekend I spent some time kind of researching, you know, what are some signs of what burnout looks like? how can i fall in love with life again and find my passion so that's part of the behind the scenes and that's part of what i am showing up on social media as because i think that yeah i think that i don't i don't want people to think it's all great but but every but but i also know that this is not where my story ends i think this is oftentimes what i tell people because if i think back and then i'll answer your question if i think back to 9 year old tiffany I am heartbroken and horrified at what she had to experience. And I will say that for many, many years, maybe even that 12-year period after, I saw no light at the end of the tunnel. But what I am learning is that that wasn't the end of my story. And part of why I can sit in spaces of light is because I also saw the darkness, right? And we have to exist on that spectrum. So one of the things that I wanted to share about why I moved to Los Angeles is that I have a longer term dream to figure out some way to get involved with the legacy of the LA 2028 Olympic and Paralympic games. And I know I've mentioned this a lot throughout the conversation. I know you look excited. I don't have like super, super exciting news, Um, but I have recently been asked to join the like an advisory group that is called the LA-28 Local Hire and Workforce Development Working Group. And so it's an advisory body that reports into LA-28. And at least my specific working group is really ensuring that who we hire to work at LA-28 really represents what Los Angeles looks like. So it's a, voluntary, it's a volunteer role, but I think it's amazing that after six, seven months of moving to Los Angeles, I now have the capacity to serve in, in a different way, similar to what I did in San Francisco. Um, and, and yeah, so if anyone on here has any connections to LA 28 or, you know, I've got five years until the games happen. <laughs> so I'm, I'm planning early, <laughs> but again, I come back to thinking about impact and, you know, TikTok and reaching 5 million views is amazing but I can't imagine a bigger event that plays a role in terms of really shaping and moving forward the conversation on disability inclusion.
0: Oh my goodness. You just gave me the chills, Tiffany, when you shared that. I have no doubt that before 2028, (laughs) we will find an opportunity for you to get plugged in to the Olympics. I am such an Olympics fan. I feel like it's such a cool event that brings the world together in such an inspiring way um, so I will be keeping my eyes and ears open <laughs> for any dots that I can connect on that front uh, I want to be respectful of your time and I hundred percent would love to talk to you for hours uh, the the one other I actually have a couple other like kind of quick hit questions that we love to ask on the podcast um the first one is, are there any like post-it length inspirational quotes or phrases that are keeping you like inspired or motivated right now? Mm. The one that came to
1: mind is in a world where you can be anything, be kind. I
0: love that. Um, Well, the other question I really wanted to ask you is um, because this is the Women Changing the World podcast and all the women who come on the show are doing such inspiring things um, to make the world a better place. I'm curious, if you could change one thing about the world and you had to pick one thing, what would be the one thing that you would love to see change in our lifetime?
1: I think that it would be, I would call this economic self-sufficiency. And to me, that's, does everyone have enough money to thrive? And I think that would be the one thing. And I don't know if this moves to a conversation of like universal basic income, But I really, you know, at least in the current capitalistic society that we're existing in, money is not only like very emotional or one of the things that I had to unlearn was that money is just energy and it's up to me to attribute positive or negative value judgment to it. And yeah, I mean, I just, I think if I could change anything, it would be just ensuring that people have, have enough money to live. You know, and oftentimes, you know, since this is a podcast about women changing the world, like a lot of women will stay in relationships due to financial abuse um, or financial constraints that don't enable them, the agency and autonomy to be able to leave a situation that isn't good for them. But anyway, that's a whole different topic. But, But that is what I would change is, and I think that's part of what I'm trying to do too, which is I want to make sure I'm taken care of first financially and then I want to take care of my family and then I want to reinvest back in my community. And maybe it's a gendered thing, but my hope is that when I say reinvest like $1 becomes another dollar becomes even more dollars, you know, it ends up growing, growing the pie for everyone.
0: Absolutely. I'm such a big believer in that. And there's so much data on, how when you invest money in in women in particular, like it, it gets amplified by the investments that we make in our, in our communities and in the people around us. Um, And I would love to have a universal basic income conversation with you another time (laughs) because um, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like it's wild that the means exist for everyone to live an economically empowered life and yet they are not equally distributed at all. I guess the last question I'd love to ask you, um, I know that le- being a leader in, in your community and like however we define community, because I know you are a leader of so many, within so many communities and like you even like host and lead different communities within <laughs> your world and Um, How do you feel like your journey as a community leader has also like influenced how you show up as a leader more broadly?
1: Yeah, I come back to Tatiana Figueredos, um, who runs a community that we're both part of called Build a Community Business. And her definition of community is when a group of people come together to nurture their own growth and each other's growth. And I've actually repeated that, de- that definition multiple times because in terms of how I lead, I love watching people grow. And part of why I have continued to do this work for, I guess, now 14 years is seeing, you know, the people who started Diversibility at Georgetown with me, one of them went to Stanford Business School and now is on the board of this really great nonprofit that I know of. I've seen friends that I met when we relaunched in in 2015 in New York write books with Penguin Random House. That's no small feat. Hi, Emily. Um, launch podcasts, win awards from the Ford Foundation. I think for me, it's when my light shines, I hope that your light shines brighter and your light shining. Maybe this goes back to the, the inspirational quotes that we like, like, your light shining does not dim my light at all. And it actually makes me super proud. And that's why I come back and I think on one of our web pages we write like a win for one of us is a win for all of us. And so how can we like uplift uplift the tide for all of us? Um, but yeah, I think that's how being a community leader, like for me, my focus as a community leader is on growth and nurturing that growth for me and for other members of the community. Um, But over time, the growth for me has looked different, right? Because I think in the early days of diversability, it was my first time sharing the story. It was my first time finding my voice in community. And now that I have that voice, and I think about the gif of women lifting each other up, like that's how I want our community to be, is we're all cheering each other on. Um, But yeah, thats I think that's how... I see myself as like a community person first and then a disability advocate second and a entrepreneur third. Um, but driving everything has been, has been community because without community, I mean, without community, diversity would not exist. You know, we were, we were playing around with being a, a, a community of one for those early years. And that was only a couple, that was only a couple days. days. Um, Cause one part I didn't share was after, uh, after those flyers were up, I started getting emails from people I knew sharing non-apparent disabilities, chronic illnesses, disorders, conditions that they had. And, and that's how I knew that we were doing something that would serve a lot of people who maybe I didn't initially target, but because of these flyers, they did. But, but yeah, I think that community is everything. Like I even think about now as a leader, how I get through, it's having access to communities like, like build a community business or dreamers and doers. I just joined another one called the Millennial Manager Collective, which <laughs> which I had a situation and I brought it up there, right? And so I go to these different communities for different things and they fill different parts of my cup.
0: Uh, I love that so much. And uh, any and all Shine Theory references are so appreciated on this podcast. I'm such a believer in this like idea that like, our lights are like mutually reinforcing. Um, and just so appreciate your sharing that perspective. Um, so for people who are listening, who are as like in love with you and the work that you're doing as I am, what's the best place for people to follow along, keep up with you and and keep in touch?
1: Yeah. So if you want to follow me, remember that once you've met one disabled person you've met one disabled person so I hope you follow a lot of other people um, but you can follow me across social media at I'm Tiffany U that's the letter M or sorry the letter I the letter M followed by my first and last name and then we always welcome people following diversibility it's very different content across both platforms Diversibility is more community oriented lots of educational content um, and you can follow
0: diversibility at diversibility and I think, they will be in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. We'll include all the links in the show notes. Um, Thank you so much, Tiffany, for this time and this conversation. I so appreciate it. I so appreciate you. Um, And it was just, again, such a privilege to shine a light on you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I'm excited for all of our listeners to now know you as well a
1: bit. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the women changing the world podcast. Please rate and review the women changing the world podcast on Spotify, Apple podcasts, or Google podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe for future episodes. You can find me on Instagram. My handle is Liz best. That's L I S B E S T. Or you can find me on LinkedIn by searching my name, Liz best. Join my mail list by visiting elizabethbest.com slash monthly meditation, and you'll receive all the latest updates on events, retreats, and opportunities to work with me, plus a monthly love note from my heart to your inbox. I am so excited to keep in touch, and I'll see you in the next episode.